God's word. Okay, let's, let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for the incredible privilege we have to study your word. Your word is a, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It is our authority. It is our compass. It is what reveals uh, you, Lord Jesus, to us. And so we uh, we are so privileged and uh, thank you for the turnout. Thank you for so many people wanting to study your word, especially young people. Uh, we ask that, Holy Spirit, you would be with us. You would lead us into all truth, keep us from error. And that as we study these books, we would see more of Christ and uh, learn learn more on, on how to live in this world in a, in a godly way. So please bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so as uh, we were saying earlier, this is very quick. You know, we've, we're flying over these, these books, but hopefully by the end you'll have a, a really healthy framework and understanding of the big picture of Scripture and how it all fits together. Um, and especially a, a framework for the Old Testament, because I think that's where we normally battle. Uh, you know, Who's Isaiah talking to? What's Zechariah got to say? What does it all mean? Um, what time in history are they talking about? Uh, you know, how come Israel is now different to Judah? What's going on? And so all of these things, we, we, we want to uh, give that framework so we can understand. And then once we understand the original setting, we can then apply it to ourselves today. So that's, that's very, very important. Uh, we need to do the hard work of understanding the original setting, the original context, the original authors. And then we can, through Christ, the coming of Christ, apply it to ourselves. Otherwise, we end up uh, with some very strange doctrines, sort of like you can't eat bacon uh, or uh, you need to be tithing 10%, uh, which is not taught in the New Testament, and all of these, these kind of things. So... Uh, let's uh, let's look at Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, Lord willing, tonight. So open your Bibles in Joshua. Uh, just to say, if you have any questions, please don't be shy. Just raise your hand. Uh, I enjoy the interaction, and I know when I was at seminary, that's how I learned by asking questions. Um, if it's not relevant to what we're talking about, then, then I'll say that. I'll say we can, we can discuss that later. But even if it's a little bit of a rabbit hole, it's fine. Uh, they're, they're enjoyable. Uh, so please don't be shy. If anything is not clear, just raise your hand. Uh, or if, if it sets off another question that you have, raise your hand as well, and, and um, I'll try and answer that. Okay, so remember where we are. Uh, the first five books of the Bible, who wrote them? Moses, or at least edited them. He didn't do the last part, talking about his death. So maybe, maybe Joshua did that part. We don't know who did that part. But really the first five books, Moses, he's given us the primeval history. He's given us the history of the nation of Israel, the establishment of the nation of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, in the 12 tribes, the captivity in Egypt, the deliverance out of Egypt, 
God covenanting with Israel, giving them the Mosaic covenant, uh, and then their rebellion and judgment, then the, the, the laws on how to live, and, uh, and then his final, final speech just before he, he dies. And, uh, and then that leaves us with who's going to take over now, and it's Joshua. And so Joshua, we are introduced in chapter 1, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. So we're familiar with Joshua already, who was his friend, out of the spies. The twelve spies, there was Joshua and? Caleb. Caleb. Okay, yeah. So... Uh, Joshua and Caleb are, were the two who are faithful. And uh, as you read through the book of Joshua, you see that you, the two of them are given special mention when it comes to land that they are, they are given. So they are given reward because of their, their faithfulness. So here yeah, we're told Moses has died. Joshua is now the, 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 the one who takes over. And here in chapter 1, uh, he is... The Lord really speaks to him, and uh, this, this section, chapter 1, is like Matthew 28. It's like the Great Commission that is given to us. Here it is given to, to Joshua. And so I want us to just see a few links with Matthew 28. Everyone familiar with Matthew 28? Remember that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ has uh, risen from the dead. And he has now come to meet with his disciples. And he says to them, well, let's read it so that we, we can see the parallels. But keep your hand in, in Joshua. So a very, very important passage. I think for all Christians, it should be one of your life verses. Okay. Matthew 28 should be one of your life verses. Uh, because it really gives us our marching orders. It gives us uh, what we're about. Uh, verse 16, Matthew 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Okay. So they worship, but there are those who doubt. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And uh, this verse is often used at missions conferences. Go. You know, we need to go. But actually, the primary verb here is make. Okay. Go, therefore, and make disciples. The focus is on making disciples of all nations. Okay. Matthew is written primarily to a Jewish audience, and yet it's Matthew that tells us the gospel is to go to. To all nations. Okay. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So there's a strong, another strong verse regarding the Trinity, because he doesn't say baptize them in the names, but he says in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Okay. One God, three persons teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, so to obey my teaching. Okay, so go, make disciples of all nations, baptize them, and you must teach them to obey my commands. 
And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So it's a frightening task God has given us. But the Lord Jesus says, I'm with you to the end of the age. When we come to Joshua's account, or Joshua's commission, uh, he is told to, to go. Go over this Jordan, you and all his people, into the land that I am giving to them. To the people of Israel, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. Uh, just as I promised to Moses from the wilderness, etc., etc. Uh, verse 5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Remember what the Lord had said, I will be with you. Here the Lord is saying, Joshua, I will be with you. Um, I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. And so we looked at that on Sunday, Sunday morning, how important our courage is in the Christian life. Many enemies, but we must be courageous, not, not uh, giving up. Being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. So you see the connection there. Remember what Jesus said, teaching them to obey everything I've instructed or commanded you. Here, you must obey everything that I told Moses. Okay, So, I'm with you. I'm with you. What I've commanded you, what I've commanded you. Okay. Uh, do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. I think some, well, it's going to carry on and say you may prosper. Good success wherever you go. Don't turn from the left or to the right from my commandments. So that's a temptation for all of us. We want to, to go our own way, to turn away from God's word. And he says, don't do that. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it for then you will make you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success have i not commanded you be strong and courageous so there it is again third time be strong and courageous do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the lord your god is with you wherever you go okay so um the ten you know that it is a real temptation to to be scared, to want to give up. Timothy was ashamed at times and felt scared. Uh, the disciples here, some of them doubted in Matthew 28. And so it is a reality in the Christian life. Why do people give up? It's too much. Okay? Those that endure to the end will be saved. And so the warning here to Joshua is don't give up. Don't be uh, frightened. Be courageous. Keep running this race. Keep fighting this fight. Don't give up. Uh, because I'm, I'm with you. Uh, now, the promise here is that he will prosper. And so it's an important idea that we need to, to just uh, expand upon because we, we're all familiar with the, the so-called prosperity gospel. Uh, what do you think Scripture means when it says to prosper? Did Jesus prosper in his life? 
Yeah. Um, if we were to define prosperity by being rich, popular, healthy, and nothing going wrong, did Jesus prosper? No, not at all. He was a total failure, actually. Uh, everyone turned against him. He starts with 12 people. He ends up with 11. <laughs> so he fails. Uh, he is persecuted, forsaken, betrayed, uh, murdered. Nothing went right for him. He said, you know, the, the, the birds have nests, the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, he, he didn't even have a coin. Remember, he had to ask someone else for a coin. Does anyone have a coin so I can show, you know, whose head is on the coin? He didn't, like, just put his hand in his money bag and uh, cash was just dripping from him. Uh, so he, he wasn't wealthy. He wasn't successful, humanly speaking, and yet he prospered. So biblically, when it speaks of prosperity, uh, we mustn't think in materialistic terms. To prosper means to fulfill God's will for your life. Okay. That's what it means to be successful. Okay. So when we say, Lord, I want to be successful, I want to prosper, and that's right, uh, what we, we sh as long as what we mean by that is, Lord, I want to fulfill your will for my life. Okay. Now, if you call me to suffer, and He does, you call me to, to sickness and maybe to poverty um, and even to plenty, because remember, you can have a lot of money and, and that can take you away from God. I think it's Abraham Lincoln who said that a true test of a person's character is not poverty, but prosperity. You know, how do you behave when you have a lot? So when you have a lot of money, are you still going to be faithful uh, to the Lord? So we need to make sure that when we read the word prosper in Scripture or good success, we don't have a materialistic framework, but we have a biblical framework of fulfilling God's will for your life. And God's will for your life may be that you remain single, that you're diagnosed with a terminal disease. I'm not, I don't want to be like a speaker of death, but I'm just trying to say, you don't know, it may be that in that, as you are faithful to God, as you continue to honor Him and give glory to Him, that you are truly prospering, okay? because that's God's will for your life. Um, if you look at the life of Jesus, he, he suffers, doesn't he? And the Lord Jesus said, if they do this to the Master, then how are they going to treat the, the servants? Okay, so, um, uh, what about the baptism? You know, where is that in this account? Well, they have to cross the Jordan River. Okay, and so crossing the Jordan River is, a, a, remember the river opens for them. And they pass through, and it's really their entrance into the promised land. And so it's a symbolic event. Okay? Uh, what about making disciples? Well, uh, what does Joshua have to go and do? What do the, the, what do the, the Jews have to go and do in, when, when they enter the promised land? What has God told them to do? So that they can go and serve him. Go and serve him. Uh, what, are, what, are, what about the people who are living there? What must they do? Kill them. Kill them and chase them out. Yeah, kill them, chase them out. Um, and it's pretty... pretty. Uh, um, it's not just the, Gene you know, the Geneva Convention, the rules of warfare that were set up by the Geneva Convention. You can't kill someone who's not a soldier. Uh, and you can't use poisonous gas. And there were certain rules that they tried to make with when it comes to warfare. Uh, 
but what does the Lord say? The Lord says, actually, you know, you must kill everyone. Man, woman, children. You must eradicate the Canaanites. Okay, so we'll discuss that just now. But uh, that, you know, when you read the Old Testament and there are all these battles and people killing each other, and I don't know if you've ever wondered, you know, what, do, what must I learn from this? Okay. How does that apply to me? You know, if you had to do a Sunday school lesson on you know, killing the Canaanites, what, you, what are you going to teach? Um, how does it apply to us today? So, uh, we must remember that when we look at the Old Testament, we use this language of shadows and types. And so they are physical uh, pointers or pictures of spiritual realities. Okay. So certainly in the Old Testament, generally, if people behaved and obeyed God's law, they would prosper, wouldn't they? Physically. That's the promise at the end of Deuteronomy. If you obey my law, you'll have lots of children, uh, your, your, your crops will, will flourish, you'll have peace with your enemies, uh, you'll conquer your enemies, things will go well for you, you won't get sick uh, if you obey me. That's generally, okay, it's not always. We have people like Job, etc. Well, Job is before the Mosaic, but we have others who suffer who are righteous. But that's generally how it, how it worked. When we come to the New Testament, then we say, no, it's totally different, uh, because those physical blessings are now pictures of spiritual blessings. Of forgiveness of sin, of of uh, having the Holy Spirit. You know what? There's no greater treasure than God Himself. So we have God. We have the hope of eternal life. We have a new heaven and a new earth that awaits us. Okay. So when it comes to them killing Canaanites, uh, when we come to the New Testament, of course, we are not called to go and kill unbelievers. Okay. Um, Unfortunately, at times in, in church history, the sword has been used to bring about conversions. Okay. But that's not the, the teaching of Scripture. We're not to use the sword or violence to, to try and coerce people into becoming Christians. Um, so what, what does it mean for us? Well, when we come to the New Testament, we see that the language of warfare is all over the place, isn't it? Uh, we see that we are told in Ephesians 6 to put on the armor of God and the sword of the Spirit, aren't we? And uh, we are told we don't fight against flesh and blood. Okay, so we, there it's, pretty, it's very clear. We're not to fight other human beings. Uh, but we fight against uh, spiritual realities and uh, ungodly philosophies. Okay? And when a person becomes a believer... The scripture says that the old man is put to death. Paul tells us this in Romans. So when this, the sword of the Spirit comes into your life and, and saves you, one of the ways that scripture uses to describe this is that you are murdered. Okay? Your old nature, your old Canaanite nature, your old Philistine nature is put to death. Does that make sense? So when you and I are evangelizing, when we are making disciples, we are doing what Joshua was commanded to do, but in the spiritual realm. 
that make sense? We are, what you're doing is go out and kill Canaanites. Okay. Put to death the old man in other people. As we preach the gospel, as you evangelize, that's what you're doing. Okay. Uh, the old man is being put to death in other people. Okay. And in ourselves when we were converted. Uh, because the natural man, the old man, this is the language Paul uses, by nature hates God, uh, is a Canaanite, is a Philistine, is a Babylonian, whatever you want to use from Scripture. Uh, we, we, we hate God, we're against Him, and salvation means that old nature is put to death, okay? and you are made spiritually alive, and you're a new person in Christ. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So, when you read Killing the Canaanites, the application for us today is to make disciples and to be killing sin in our, in our lives. Okay. Does that make sense? Okay. So, hopefully that will help you as you read the Old Testament. Um, uh, does anyone here have, have uh, it's one of the common objections to Christianity is the, is the one could say the genocide of the Canaanites. Does, does, uh, does anyone battle with that? Find it difficult? Does anyone want me to explain more or defend it or explain? Expand on it. Okay. Because that's what Joshua is called to do. Okay. Uh, he is to go into the promised land and they are to, to wipe out. Now, uh, we could, you know, if, you know, we could say, if, if, if the Bible didn't say certain, certain things, we could say, Yes, that was a primitive culture and everyone was doing it and yeah, it wasn't good, but that's what happened. But when we read scripture, it's very clear that God commands them to do it. So it had nothing to do with, they didn't really know what they were doing. God actually commands them to do it. Okay, so uh, as you say, it's difficult to reconcile what's going on here. Well, uh, several things we have to take into to account. Uh, the first is that right back in Genesis, um, we're, we're told about the Canaanites and uh, Abraham's dealings with them, but their iniquity was not yet full. So what that means is they were not yet ready for judgment. Okay? They hadn't reached the place. Uh, so many people, when they read the Old Testament, they think, you know, God just seems to be angry and He's judging people all the time. But that's a wrong reading of the Old Testament. Okay? Um, because maybe you're just reading it, and it, you know, I don't know how long, how many hours it takes to read the whole Old Testament, whatever it is, not very long. Uh, <laughs> well, theoretically. <laughs> uh, but you must remember that it's over thousands of years, isn't it? So when we read of God's judgment, it's not as though you know, somebody did something wrong and God says, that's it, I've had enough. I'm going to wipe you out. Okay? 
Uh, it's over a long period of time of warning. So with the Canaanites, all the way back at the time of Abraham, which is uh, hundreds and hundreds of years before, uh, before the, the actual judgment, the Lord says their iniquity is not yet full. Uh, remember what Peter says? God is patient, isn't he? Long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So it's not some random thing God just decided. It was, these people are, are in rebellion and they're evil. One, one archaeologist said that the Canaanite religion is the most evil religion that has ever been created. Okay, so archaeologists have discovered a lot about Canaanite religion. And so uh, there was, it was full of sexual immorality and abuse of women because they believed that through sexual immorality, temple prostitution, they would, it was a fertility cult, uh, they, would, they, would gain, they would gain blessings. Okay? They also believed that sacrificing their children would bring them blessings. And so they would burn their little children to death to appease the gods. Okay? So it was a wretched... Uh, you mustn't have the idea of these lovely people who actually really want to love God, um, but God won't let them. They're, they're, they're wicked. Okay. Um, and so God has declared judgment on them. The other thing to, to note that's important is that Israel wasn't commanded to do this to all nations. It was a specific act on the Canaanites. Okay. Uh, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see that they don't carry on doing this. God didn't say you need to go and kill all the other nations. It was a specific act of judgment on the, the Canaanites for their rebellion. But when we read the account in Joshua, when they came to a city, if that city repented and submitted to Israel, they would be taken in as slaves and they would not be killed. So they were given the option to to submit to, to God's judgment, and not to, to resist, and then there would be, be mercy. But if they resisted, then they were to be put to death. Um, so Meredith Klein, he says that, you know, if you're viewing the judgment on the Canaanites as a, a um, You know, if you're using the theory of evolution to say, you know, they were not evolved enough. You know, that was an old uh, ethic, which there are some, some theologians that talk like this. They say the Old Testament ethic was sub-Christian. Okay. But now, you know, the Christian ethic is far higher. Uh, what's the problem with that? Why would, why would we say that's, that can't be right? Sorry, repeat the question. Yes. So why? So some people say you know the, the Old Testament laws and ethics, morality that God gave, is sub-Christian. So the morality in the Old Testament is less than the morality in the New Testament. What would be a problem with that? It's the same God. The same God. Okay. So God doesn't change. He doesn't say you know this is sin. And then it's not sin. We're talking about moral commandments. God has a right to change um, um, uh, positive law. So positive law is, is like when I, I, 
when my children were smaller, I could send them to bed at 7 o'clock. There's nowhere in the Bible that says children have to go to bed at 7 o'clock. But as they get older, I change it. No, you can go to bed at 8. And they get older. Now you can go to bed at 9. I'm changing it, aren't I? Because it's not a moral law. I can do that. I can't say, no, you know, it's okay to murder today, but now that you're 13, you need to stop murdering people. Okay, you can't, you can't do that. And so God can say, you can't eat bacon. Okay, now you can eat bacon. Uh, because it's a, it's, it was for a season and it had other things that maybe you covered already when you looked at, at the ceremonial law. Um, but God can change that. But there's no way that God would say, would say, you can't blaspheme my name, but now it's okay, you can do it. Okay. Uh, it's the same God. Okay. So, uh, it's not substandard. God is, Meredith Klein argues, it's not some, you know, this is some step on the process of evolution to a higher ethic. Okay. He says, no, this is an, an, uh, a, uh, I think it has two R's, I can't remember. So we've, you're familiar with this word, eh? Eruption. Uh, when do we use that word? Eruption. Volcanoes. Yeah, that's exactly when we use it. Volcanoes. An eruption so that it's something within the earth erupts out. Okay? Uh, so theologians talk about it in, in eye eruption. Or, uh, so this is, you know, something coming out from within. This is something coming in from uh, outside. That make sense? That's my that's in the way. Um, so the 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 flood, uh, the destruction of the Canaanites, um, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, AD seventy, uh, tsunamis. So many things are eruptions of the final day of judgment, day of the Lord. Okay. So this is this is uh, a proleptic event, back from the future event. Okay, theology is really cool. Uh, not back to the future, back from the future. Okay. There is the final judgment, day of the Lord. And every day there are little eruptions of that final day into the world. And in scripture there are bigger ones and smaller ones. The flood is obviously a massive one, isn't it? It is the great paradigm of the final judgment. Peter uses it. Except God's not going to destroy the world by water anymore. He's going to destroy it by fire. Okay. And so the, the judgment on the Canaanites is not some stumbling in some evolutionary path to a higher ethic. It is, it is an eruption of the final day of the Lord. It's a manifestation of the righteous judgment of God on a wicked people. Okay? Using the nation of Israel as his instrument. Uh, you will see this, this uh, Sunday... 
Pastor Lelo is going to be preaching through the book of Habakkuk over the next few Sundays. And you will see that, how God uses the Babylonians as his instrument of judgment on the Israelites. Uh, and so it's God's, again, it's God's righteous judgment coming back in to time and space in the world that we now live. Does that make sense? Okay. If we have a man-centered view of reality, um, then it's a lot harder to understand these things. Um, because we, we, we tend to think that people are good. But if we, we need to shift to say, okay, what does the scripture say? That David says, in sin my mother conceived me. Okay? He's not talking about his mother sinned when she conceived him. He's talking about that when he's, his conception, he's conceived as sinful. By nature, our very nature, we are the children of judgment. Okay? Uh, we are bent towards evil by nature. The heart of man is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Okay. So that's the biblical framework that we need to, to have. When we begin to see that men and women are evil by nature, then when God judges, it's not some horrible, terrible thing. It's not to say it's a nice thing. I'm not arguing that. But it's not an unjust thing. Does that make sense? Whereas if I have the framework, no, people are inherently good, and that's unfair, then, of course, I'm making God much smaller, and I'm really questioning God's justice, aren't I? Where the Bible is very clear, God is 100% just. Okay? And that's why the cross has so much meaning for us, because... If, my, if, if I'm inherently good, then I don't actually really need someone to die for me because I'm not too bad. But if I realize how evil I am and how I'm, I'm, I'm within me is the, the potential for every act of evil for, uh, for me to commit genocide, for me to rape, for me to be homosexual, for me to... Uh, be a pedophile for me to do all of those things that's within my heart it's not something out there it's simply God's grace that he's kept me okay? um, Paul says it but by the grace of God I am what I, I am it's, it's the grace of God it's the grace of God in society that protects us from being as bad as we could be um, but if we were left to our own devices if, we were, if God's grace was removed from our lives all manner of evil is found within us. And so, the fact that God would still love me and, and suffer in my place is a marvel. But if I have a high view of myself, then the cross isn't that amazing. Because, yeah, okay, you know, it's, that's nice that he did that. But I'm not that bad. But uh, when, I, when we see ourselves for what we truly are, and we don't really ever, ever see that, I think God protects us from that because it would be too overwhelming. Um, but when, when, when we see men and women like that, then God's judgment makes sense. Okay? As I said, it's not an easy thing, but it, it does make sense okay? that God is just. Uh, just as um, people rejoice 
when, when um, judgment is handed out by the court. Okay? Don't they? People rejoice, throw parties. What? Why do they do that? Well, it's the same thing. In fact, in Revelation it says, when everyone is cast into hell, we will sing hallelujah. You know that? <laughs> you know Handel's Messiah? That great song, and there's a the hallelujah chorus. That's taken from the book of Revelation. Um, and so we we, when we bring it to that level, then I think we can begin to understand something of the, the justice of God. The other thing I would just say when it comes to children, uh, this is not, not all people's theology or understanding, but I do believe that those who die before some sort of understanding or die in infancy are elect. Okay? Because the scripture... Uh, always says we will be judged for our works, not for original sin. Does that make sense? So, um, I think it's, much, it's very easy to argue that for the children of believers. So remember David sinned with Bathsheba, and then the child died. Remember that? And then what does, what does David say? He says, he won't come to me, but I will go to him. How does David know that? He has absolute confidence, I'm going to see him again. I will go to him one day. Okay. And First uh, Corinthians 7 says, The children of a believing parent are holy, set apart. Um, so I, I do believe that, so that the children that died here, I believe, are in glory. Okay. And all children that have died are in glory. Okay. The Bible just doesn't make it explicit because you can imagine if there was a verse that said all children who die are in heaven, you would get a lot of crackpots thinking they're doing evangelism by shooting all children. Okay, um, So there isn't an explicit verse, but I, I do believe that. Okay, okay so um, we need to see it within that framework. And again, God's patience. This was not arbitrary. This was over hundreds of years. That the Canaanites got worse and worse and worse and worse and refused to submit to God. And, uh, and um, I'm sure you did the cursing of, of Canaan with Noah. Yes? I have a question regarding that, by the way. Yes. Um, so the curse comes from, from Noah. Uh, when he said, "Care to the the poor child of of Shem, Ham, 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 right?" Uh, so does the abomination uh, predate uh, from Ham? Uh, uh, I probably do not know about this. Some some scholars say that Ham uh, uh, saw his 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 parents' nakedness, which means he he was uh, with his mother. So I don't know probably. Yeah, I don't, uh, so remember after the flood, there's Noah and he has his three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth. And so then uh, Ham remember, exposes his father's nakedness. Remember Noah gets drunk 
and then Ham exposes his nakedness again. We don't know what that means, if he was sexually immoral with his father, or if he just, he just um, was, uh, you know, embarrassed his father by, you know, hey guys, come check, dad's naked. Uh, but whatever he did was shameful. But it's important that, uh, because that, that verse is often used as a justification for apartheid. Um, because it says that people think Ham was cursed. So the Hamitic tribes or your African tribes, your Shem, your Shemitic or Semitic tribes are your Asian Middle Eastern tribes and Japheth is your, your um, Caucasian European tribes. Uh, and so it's often, often been used because remember there's a curse of being a slave. And so in apartheid, and, and it has been used. But when you go and read it, Ham is not cursed. His son is cursed. Canaan is cursed. So that's, again, just the importance of exegesis, reading what the scriptures say. So his son is cursed, Canaan, uh, probably because God saw, knew the evil that he was going to commit. But Canaan is cursed, and this is a fulfillment of it, and there are no more Canaanites on the planet. Uh, they were, they've been wiped out. Okay, but I don't know, I no doubt their, their sin is, their, their, we know that their sin is terrible. Okay. So again, this is not some random thing that happens, it comes back from all the way from the time of Noah and the original Canaan and, and his behavior and then there's grace, their iniquity is not full yet. And so it's a judgment of God, a righteous judgment of God. It's not, it's not like um, Islam with jihad. You know that that uh, um, I would say correct interpreters of the Quran. Uh, they believe in holy war, jihad, where you need to kill anyone who refuses to to become Muslim. Uh, that's not what God was calling to do. He didn't say this is what you must do to all tribes. This it was specific to the to the Canaanites. It was an act of judgment on them, and that was the end of it. That was not how Judaism was spread or anything like that. It wasn't through the sword. It was a specific act of judgment on them. Okay, so let's uh, rush through Joshua. <laughs> okay, so he's commissioned, but we have covered a lot of the important things anyway okay, in Joshua. Uh, so he goes into, uh, um, he's commanded to go and take the land. The land that God has promised. Remember, Moses was not allowed to do it because of his sin. He could see the land, but he wasn't allowed to enter in. Um, he, uh, Joshua is a type of Christ. Even his name is Yeshua, Hebrew. And if you're familiar, Jesus, uh, Jews say Yeshua HaMashiach, uh, the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah. So, uh, the same name. He is... Uh, an image of what we call Christ as divine warrior. Okay. Uh, and probably not a theme that we think of a lot when it comes to Jesus, but an important theme. That Jesus is a divine warrior, isn't he? Uh, he is our king. He is our knight in shining armor who comes and saves the, the bride, okay? Saves the church. By slaying her enemies, okay, the flesh, the devil, death, okay, 
Uh, and so these types of Christ in the Old Testament, Joshua is one of them. David as a warrior is another one. David defeating Goliath is a type of Christ. Christ is a mighty warrior. There's a graphic description of Jesus in Isaiah where his garments are dripping in blood because he's been in warfare and destroying the enemies of God's people. Okay, And so it's important we have this also the strong image of Christ. Okay. Not just as a lamb, but also as a, a lion. Okay. And when he comes again on a white horse, symbolically in scripture, and destroys all the enemies of God. So it is, it is critical um, to also have this full holistic view of Christ. Uh, Christ is not a, a coward. Christ is courageous and brave and powerful and protects his bride. And that's the, the wonder of it. You know, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. No enemy that you face, not even death, no demon, uh, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus because Christ is a powerful warrior who protects his people. And so Joshua is a type of Christ. Uh, he has given this, this information to go, and then he calls for spies to go and check out the land. And we have the story of Rahab, and Rahab is uh, saved and uh, is a believer and ends up in the line of Christ. Okay, and uh, she, she uh, remember how is she protected? She puts that scarlet um, cloth outside her window. And I do believe, I know scholars often say it's got nothing to do with Christ's death, but I, it doesn't make sense to me that it doesn't, because in the Passover, how did they escape judgment? By painting blood on the doorposts. How does she escape judgment? By putting a red piece of clothing. You know, I, I don't know why it's so difficult for people to say that that's a clear pointer to Christ. How do we escape the judgment that God deserves? By the blood of Jesus, by his death. Remember the blood of Jesus, it sounds weird. I often like cringe when we sing those songs about the blood of Jesus. Like they sound pretty weird when you start to think about them, you know. You know, need to be washed in the blood of Christ. It sounds quite gruesome if you really think of it. But when scripture talks about the blood of Jesus, it's simply a way of referring to his death. He died for us. He shed his blood for us so that we would escape the wrath of God that we deserved. He bore the punishment upon himself. Uh, and she's saved. Um, yes? Um, she obviously lied <laughs> to, to do what had to be done. Yes. So how do we... Reconcile that? Yeah. Yeah. But how do we... Should we do that today? Is there warrant? Yeah. Yeah. Or... Everyone uh, hear that? Yeah. So remember, Ray, they come to her and they say, We're the spies. And she says, No, they went that way. But they're actually, uh, she's hiding them away. So she's lying. Okay. Um, so there are different views within, within Christian circles. Some people say, No, she did the wrong thing. She was lying. And she didn't trust God. And the same with the Hebrew midwives, remember in Exodus? Mm -hmm. Shipra and Pua. Uh, they, they were told to kill all the male Jews. 
And then they didn't. And when they were said, you know, why didn't you do it? They said, no, these, these Jewish ladies are so strong. By the time we get there, they've already given birth and they're gone. And they were lying. And uh, God commends them by, we know their names. We don't even know Pharaoh's name. <laughs> we just told Pharaoh. We don't, God doesn't, couldn't care less about Pharaoh's name. But these two midwives, okay, and this is important. You know, when we think of Egypt, we think pharaohs and pyramids and everything. The Holy Spirit couldn't care less about the pyramids. It's not like, you know, and Egypt was amazing, full of pyramids and all sorts of things. <laughs> He's like, there were two Hebrew ladies who obeyed God. I'm going to mention their names. Okay, So that's important for us. Um, the kingdoms of this world, the power, the pomp and the ceremony. God's concern is His church, His people. He died for his church. Okay. No matter how small or insignificant we are, that's his focus. That's who he loves, his church. Anyway, they lied. Okay. Uh, so, uh, are we allowed to lie? Uh, so some say, you know, not at all. They did the wrong thing. Um, uh, now, Rahab is commended for her faith in Hebrews. So then some will say, you see, she's commended for her faith. But she's also commended in James for her works. Remember, James's argument is faith without works is dead. So, uh, the ninth commandment doesn't say thou shalt not lie. What does the ninth commandment say? Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. Okay. So, neighbor in that context means in terms of covenant, covenant relationship. Okay. So, I would argue they weren't lying. So some people who push this, because if you say they're lying, then you're going to say anyone who did, because what they would say is, no, she, she should have just kept quiet. But that's not telling the truth either. Yeah, but you could keep quiet. Who kept quiet when he was asked a question? Jesus. The only time Jesus answers the question is when they put him under oath. So I would say under oath, you can't lie. You know, if you go under oath, then you, you cannot say anything. You need to tell exactly. The other thing is, what about things like camouflage in warfare? What are you doing in, when you do that? You're being deceitful, aren't you? You're, 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 you're being deceitful. Some, go read some of the... It's, it's, yeah, the Battle of AI. What does it say? Go and hide... They can't see you. Send a small group to draw them out and then run away. They will follow you. Then the guys on the side come and kill them. Deception. Okay. So, you know, you, you need to push it and say, okay, what is going on? Now, clearly the scripture is not against deception in certain situations. In warfare, uh, Jesus doesn't tell the truth. He keeps quiet. Why? Because in certain situations, people have lost a right to the truth. They don't care. They're no longer... There's a, there's, a, there's a... Now, you need to be very careful. Don't go from here thinking... <laughs> SARS have lost the right to the truth. <laughs> uh, no. Um, uh, you know, a modern day, or you know, more recent example, I think, is, is those who were hiding Jews during the, the World War II. And when Nazis came to their door, I would argue... Uh, you actually require to not tell the truth, to preserve life. 
So I wouldn't call it lying, because lying is sinful. It's, the, it's, it's a person who's lost the right to the truth. Okay? So you can give it another name or something like that. Um, so I, yeah, that's how I would argue. I would say, no, it's right, because they are commended for their, their works. Um, so there are definitely situations, preservation of life, where, where um, you, you can do that, and other times where you can just keep quiet. Um, and and uh, I think Proverbs also has some interesting, some other interesting things, ethical things, that we won't we won't go into today. But um, yeah, very good question. I was I was just I was thinking should I touch on it or not, and then I thought no, it's too our time. But thank you. <laughs> okay, so uh, they they go and then there's the fall of Jericho again. They don't do anything. Except march around the city. Now, archaeologists have discovered that part of um, some pagan rituals of Jericho was that they would once a year walk around the city and, and do certain things as a form of worship to their god. Now, when you read the plagues, I'm assuming Akai did this, you just mentioned it maybe in passing. Remember that the plagues on Egypt are not random. They're actually attacks on the Egyptian gods, aren't they? The Egyptians worshipped the Nile River, they worshipped cows, they worshipped the sun, they worshipped the first they worshipped the, 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 the Pharaoh and his son was seen as the son of God. Okay? Uh, and so each plague is an attack on the false gods of Egypt. God is saying, I am the true God. And so even in this weird thing, can you imagine being in the Jew, the Israelite army like what on earth are we doing? Like every day, we sort of, when are we going to fight? We're going to be so tired. But they didn't have to do anything. God brought the walls down and then they, then they went in. But uh, I think the, the very strange things that they did was actually an attack on the false gods of Jericho as well. Uh, but then there's Achan, who doesn't listen. The first city they conquered, they were to wipe out everything. They were not allowed to take anything. They had to kill all the animals other cities, they were allowed to keep what was there. Okay? Because the promise was, I'm going to give you a place, a land, where there's houses that you didn't build, and all of these things, vineyards that you didn't plant, I'm going to give it to you. But here at Jericho, he doesn't do that. I think, just to remind them, this is not about the goodies. There's something bigger at work here. So this first city, I want you to destroy everything. But remember, Achan takes some gold and some clothing. The next city, Ai, they think, oh, a piece of cake, we'll just send a few guys, they lose. Um, uh, Joshua cries, and uh, the Lord told them just to stand up, stop crying. There's sin in the camp, and then um, Achan and his whole family are put to death. Okay? Um, again, I don't, I don't know if it means that he's in hell, because, because Joshua jo- he, he confesses to doing it. Because okay? uh, Joshua says, give God the glory. Okay? And so he confesses to doing it. Um, but it's again this picture of federal headship or representation. So just as Adam sins and the whole human race is affected, Achan's sin affects his whole family. Okay? And so we understand that. Uh, if we have good rulers, there's blessing that comes on the nation, isn't it right? If you have a good father, 
blessing generally comes upon the family. Okay? Uh, if you have good pastors, if you have good uh, business leaders, etc., etc., this is a principle in, in Scripture. If you don't like it, then you can't accept the gospel either. Okay? Because Jesus, what he accomplished, is applied to us as well. Uh, even though we don't deserve it. But it's just showing us again this principle. Um, so our sin is not private. It's really, really important. Yes, Tom? Um, is Joshua sort of confronting anything? Is that a picture of like church discipline as like Israel sort of is? Yeah. In a sense, what they have in the Testament for the church. Yeah, definitely. So. Uh, in the Old Testament, you were put to death. Okay. Remember, two or three witnesses, he was stoned to death. Jesus uses the same language of two or three witnesses in Matthew 18. Um, but now we don't put people to death physically, but we do put them outside of the, the excommunion, outside of fellowship, outside of the church. Okay, so a spiritual death. Um, so again, as I said, it's physical pictures in the Old Testament that represent spiritual things in the New Testament. So yeah, it's the, it's the, the, the shadow of, of church discipline today. Okay. Um, uh, so, 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 yes? So far, uh, uh, from Genesis to Joshua, how did the Israel know about God saves us from His wrath. How did they know about the, great, the greatest wrath, which is going to save us from, which is hell, no hell, from uh, punishment or, or disobedience? We just say that I'll give your daughters to us, but I haven't gotten that idea of like an eschatological of, 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 hell. of the wrath of God. Yeah. Where did they get it like consciously through the temporal punishment or? Even the Canaanites, yeah. they like the knowledge of hell, where we're Yeah. Um, How did they go about you know, knowing what is to come after? Yes. Yes. It's and not... And it's also, I just want to know that in the beginning, uh, when God created all the creation, you know, saying that and God saw that was good, was hell created during that time? And did he also... That's, that's Okay. Um, uh, I, I, that one I don't know. The scripture doesn't give us enough um, uh, information on that one. Um, and, and I wouldn't, you know, hell is not a physical place. It's a spiritual realm, so it's not created in the same way that material things are created. It's not like a, you know, just a big place. It's it's out of darkness. Um, anyway, we don't have time for that. But yeah, so I don't think it's it falls in the same category. Um, it's a place where there's where God removes His gracious attributes. Okay, so that's that's what it is. Um, 
So it's not a created, it's almost a, de- it's a decreation. Uh, the other, oh, how did they know, did they know about hell and that? Well, I think the story of Cain and Abel gives us that insight. So it's not explicit as it is later on uh, developed, but I think that there was an understanding of, of a, uh, an eternal torment because there's an understanding of eternal life. You know, Job says that I know that I will see him in my flesh. So he, he has an expectation of the resurrection and, and uh, life continuing. Ecclesiastes says God has set eternity in our hearts. But uh, Cain and Abel, I think, gives us an insight because uh, Cain kills Abel. Abel, the Lord had said to Cain, if you do what is right, you'll be blessed. So if you're reading it, you're like, that's great. I wonder what's, what blessing awaits Abel. Uh, and then the next thing you read, he's dead. His brother kills him. So like, that's strange. Then God protects Cain. Says no one can hurt Cain. It doesn't make any sense. The bad guy, the murderer, gets protected. The good guy gets his brain smashed up. Like, what's going on? Either God is unjust, or the 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 accounting comes into play in the next life. And that's what the story I think is pushing us to. So either either yes, God's a liar. Uh, and, and or else no and now we know no uh, Cain is in a bad place Abel is in a good place okay okay well, I've been given instructions that our time is up for this session so let's pause there okay we can get snacks or tea